Maybe let's turn open to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 is where we'll start in this part of our worship this morning. <clears throat> Good to see everybody this morning. We, uh, we cleaned up all this stuff. I say we, I didn't really do as much as some of the others in cleaning up, uh, but uh, our, our building has uh, stopped being Mesopotamia and uh, Canaan and Egypt and all of those places, and it's back to just being our regular building. But I, I just had a blast this last week, and I want to say, for my part, I haven't really spoken publicly since we did all of that, um, how much I appreciate all the work that goes into that, uh, especially, and this was said Wednesday, uh, when we have our VBS, um, everybody does some, and then there are the ladies that, that teach and the ladies that plan and do the crafts and all of that, uh, that do so much more than the rest of us, and so we're so thankful for that. Thank you to everyone who participated in that. I know it was a great experience for my children, and I know for others too. So that's a good work that we've done, and uh, now uh, we can have the building back to normal here. So uh, this morning we're doing our Q&A, and uh, what that is, for those who are visiting with us, we have some visitors this morning, uh, these are questions that people here have submitted to me, uh, and they've previously done it. The, the idea is not that I'm going to sit up here and answer questions from the audience as I'm going. Uh, but that I can prepare something and answer to a question and then present it, assuming that questions that some have are also questions that others have. So that's what we've been doing uh, in our Q&A mornings, and this is the second Sunday of the month, so we're going to try to do that this morning. I do want to encourage you, before I get started, to send me more questions. Uh, when I first announced this, I think it was uh, at the beginning of the year, maybe a little before, uh, I had a whole bunch of questions come in at once, and that was great. We're still working off some of those, uh, but I don't want the well to run dry. I, I don't suspect that I've answered all the questions in the world. If I have, you can just nod, uh, but I suspect that there are still other questions that you have, so, so send those to me, uh, and uh, you can email them to me. You can talk to me, but remember, make sure I get it recorded somewhere, uh, because just because we talk doesn't mean I'm going to remember. All right, so... Uh, our first question in our Q&A this morning has to do with the elders. Is the question, does the elders' authority extend to my personal finances, or is it only spiritual? Uh, so this is a question that's about, do the elders have the right or the authority to talk about what I do with my money, or even ask questions about what I'm doing with my money? And so if we're going to answer that question, which is a very specific question, I think we need to start more broadly uh, and talk about elders' authority more generally. And so we'll work inward from there, so to speak, from the specifics, from the generics of the text. So let's start here in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. In Acts 20, Paul is speaking to the, the elders of the church in Ephesus, and he gives them this instruction, Acts 20 and verse 28. Acts 20 and verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So elders, he says in verse 28, are overseers of the flock. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which is among you, or to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So there is a responsibility that the elders have to the flock. It has to do with overseeing. It has to do with shepherding. Or the word in my version is care for. Your version might have a word like feed. The word in the Greek is the word to shepherd. 
And we understand that when we have a shepherd, we have someone who, who has multiple roles. The shepherd doesn't only feed the sheep. And if a wolf comes, the shepherd says, well, sorry, that's not in my job description. I'm just a feeder. Okay? Nor does the shepherd say, I only protect the sheep. You've got to get the food on your own. Shepherd is sort of all in one. He takes care of the sheep, and that's going to involve protection. It's going to involve feeding. It's going to involve a lot of care. And that is what an elder is. An elder has that responsibility to the flock. And so he is telling the Ephesian elders, you watch out in Ephesus, especially in this text, the emphasis is on protection. Because he says in verse 29 and following, fierce wolves are coming and you got to watch out. So you need to be on the lookout. You need to be overseeing the church. Now, I want you to notice how that plays out, that that is a spiritual reality, that elders are overseeing the church, but it plays out in certain physical things. So what that's going to mean is there are some people who are not going to be allowed to have influence in that local church. That's what he's saying. Watch out, savage wolves are coming. And sometimes people, he says, even from among your own selves, which might imply those who are already elders are going to try to draw away disciples after themselves. So there are going to be some actions that are going to need to be taken to prevent that from happening. There are going to need to be some monitoring of what is taught and maybe some correction that goes on. So those are physical things. They're, they're real actions, but they stem from a spiritual reality. And I want you to see that pattern here because we'll see it again as we go forward. All right, let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. We're just doing a little review here of elders and their authority, and, uh, and then we'll proceed to answer this question. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 12. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 12 says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So you have a couple of things here. One has to do with, verse 12, those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, they also do a work for you, verse 13. So they have a certain role and they have a certain authority because of that. I think that's what's implied by the term over you in the Lord. But there is also a responsibility to those of us who are under that authority or under that oversight because he says in verse 12, you respect them. And verse 13, you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So there is a relationship that goes on there about obedience and submission to authority. And then there is, what is the authority? Well, it has to do with being over you in the Lord and admonishing and teaching. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13 and verse 7. We're going to read two verses here, Hebrews 13 and 7, and then Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Hebrews 13 and verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So you have the term leaders here. We don't have elders specifically spelled out. They are those who spoke the word of God, and they are examples to you. So he says, you follow their example. And then in verse 17, he talks about obey and submit to them because they are keeping watch over your soul. So that takes us back to that image back from Acts 20 of overseeing, watching over. Here, though, it is watching over souls, not just watching over a group, as in what's going to happen with this group, but watching over souls as those who must give an account for those who are under their charge, just sort of like a shepherd if he comes back and there's no, you know, you lost three or four of the sheep, 
Well, you're going to have to tell the owner of the sheep, well, here's what happened. You're going to have to give an account for what happened with the lives of those sheep. In the same way, elders give account for those who are under their charge. So he is saying, make their job easy by submitting and obeying them. So, again, you have this pattern, though, that when you have a spiritual reality like they're watching over souls, that's going to have certain physical outgrowths. There are actions that are going to be taken. So there are going to be times when an elder will have to say, that's wrong, you need to stop. Now, is that a spiritual or a physical thing? The answer is yes. It starts as a spiritual concern because of a spiritual responsibility, but it becomes a physical action that says certain physical actions need to quit because they reflect a, a damaged spiritual reality. So there is authority here in Hebrews 13 for certain actions that stem from watching over souls. And I think you could probably think through what some of those might be, but I just want to establish that principle here. All right, one more passage in 1 Peter chapter 5. This is 1 Peter 5 and verse 1. 1 Peter 5 and verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So verse 2 says, shepherd the flock of God or tend to the flock of God that is among you. Now I want to point out that that is among you restricts the oversight of an eldership to the local church where they are. That is, an elder here doesn't have authority over some other group. And that's an important principle because that's sort of been abused throughout history. But God's intention, just like the Ephesian elders are in charge of the Ephesian church, Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And he talks about exercising oversight. That word is the word, verb form of the word bishop, bishoping them, overseeing them, watching over them. And he talks about three motive statements. If you look in verse 2, uh, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So you don't do this because people are forcing you to do it. Verse, three, uh, verse 2, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. That is, an elder is not trying to get something out of this. He's not doing this from sinister motives where he will benefit. And then verse 3, not domineering or, or lording it over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That is, he's not trying to have power where he can be the boss. And so now he can use that role, that authority, to boss everyone around. So that, those are motive statements that have to do with why elders serve. So elders are intended to serve freely and of goodwill, and that's the way elders serve. That's the way they shepherd the flock. So... There's our little mini-study of the elders' authority in the New Testament. So the question is, um, does the elders' authority extend to my personal finances, or is it only spiritual? Let me start with this. It seems to me that we often think about the church in corporate terms. And this may be because we live in America, and so much of American thought about organizations is from corporations, but it's... What I mean by that is we, we can sometimes think of elders as sort of the CEOs or the board of directors of a church. And their job is just sort of to have a, a top-down view. You know, you just, you guys set the agenda and you're sort of distant from what's going on on the ground floor with the ordinary worker. 
And that seems to me to be the idea in some places about the eldership and about the church. And when we think that way, what we lose is we lose a sense that the elders have a relationship and a responsibility with every single person under their care. Everyone. Okay, so they do not just sit up in an ivory tower and say, we'll manage the budget and we'll decide the vision for the church and you guys just execute our vision. See, that's sort of corporate, right? Okay, instead it is very much, I'm concerned about you, I know you, when I see something in your life that's a, a problem, I, I'm gonna try to help you. When I see something that's good, I'm gonna celebrate it with you, I'm gonna help you grow. The elders are invested in the biblical view in every single sheep in their flock, every single one under their care. So God intends that leadership to be born of pure motives, to be born of right living, to be born of discipline, to be born of concern. That's what real biblical eldership looks like. So what's clear as you look through these passages that elders have authority. Does that mean that elders have the, the right to make rules for God? Obviously, the answer to that question is no. They have what we might call delegated authority. That is, they have authority that's been given to them, but they answer to someone else. They answer to the Father. You see in 1 Peter 5, 4, they answer to the chief shepherd. Okay? So they're going to give an account for what they've done, and they also have a responsibility to reflect what God has said. But they do have authority to use their best judgment as they understand God's word, as they understand the needs of each soul, as they understand the welfare of the group. They do have authority to do that. Sometimes, when we disagree with our elders about something they decide, in some judgment they make in that capacity, we have an obligation to obey and submit to them, even when we disagree about those things that we decide. Now, we might think they have bad motives in that situation, but remember, that's a very serious accusation. I want to remind you, it might not be on the board. I don't remember if I put this up here. Let me look. Nope. Ah, don't look. Nobody look. You didn't see that. I want to remind you, I thought I put it on the board, but instead it's just here in my notes. First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the, witness of the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. So the idea of charging an elder or accusing an elder of something is a very serious matter. And that is told by the fact that there are to be witnesses for what has been accused, what the elder has been accused of. But here is what I'm trying to say. Absent evidence of sin in our elders, our obligation is to submit to them. Now, I understand that, that we're talking, if we're talking about false teaching or we're talking about openly endorsing sin or something, we're in a different realm there. I understand that, and I think you do too. I am saying that the overwhelming force of the New Testament's teaching about this is listen to them, submit to them, because they are watching over your souls and they have the authority to make decisions based on that responsibility. All right, so... I've gone circle and circle and circle. Are you ready for me to answer the question? All right. So do the elders, does the elders' authority extend to my personal finances? Yes, if sin involves financial matters. In Acts chapter 5, you remember Ananias and Sapphira bringing their money 
to the apostles and laying it at the apostles' feet. And Peter asks them a number of questions about their contribution. How much did you sell it for? What exactly, how did you plot this together? Peter had the authority to ask those questions as he had that role as an apostle. It was not an overreach of his authority. I understand that there's a difference between an apostle and an elder. I am pointing out that in Acts chapter 5, nobody said, Peter, that's none of your business. Nobody said, Peter, that's private. Leave me alone. That's not in your authority. What if I have stolen? If I have stolen and the elders say, did you steal that? Can I justifiably say, you don't have any authority over my money? What if I've defrauded someone? Is that information off limits? What if I have misrepresented my financial condition, told them that I'm very poor when I'm not, that I need help from the church when I don't? Do they have no ability to ask questions about that or to inquire if I'm really telling the truth? Now, to be sure, there are wisdom concerns here as well. This is not a knee-jerk response to say, you know what, the elders are just always itching to get more information about my money. Okay? I think we need to understand that I can't answer for all elders everywhere, but I can at least say this about our elders here. They're not interested in all of that. They're not just trying to find more information about that. But if elders were going to take the course, if our elders were going to take the course where they ask someone about their finances, there would probably be a reason for some concern and suspicion in that. But I want to reaffirm, and this is really the most important thing I'm going to say about this specific question. I want to reaffirm that my money is a spiritual concern. And what I do with it is a spiritual matter. My debt, my greed, my financial integrity is a part of my soul. And my elders watch out for my soul. So does their authority extend to my personal finances? Yes. But of course, that has some reservations attached with it. That is not just an excuse for the elders to say, everybody present their tax returns right now. Okay, that's not the idea. But I do believe that if there's a concern that sin is going on, that there is always authority for elders to try to do what they can to help us to quit sinning as they watch out for our souls. All right, second question, which you've already seen, but you forgot. So thank you for forgetting. Uh, what do we make of unrecorded prophecies, such as Matthew 2.23? Let's look over Matthew 2.23. Matthew 2.23, let's just start in Matthew 2.22. It says, But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea and the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived, Matthew 2.23, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So if your Bible shows quotations from the Old Testament with quotes, and maybe a little reference, you might notice that there's no quotations and no reference in that verse. Some versions do have quotations, but no reference. Some versions, like the ESV, just don't have anything. It just reads straight. So, the reason for that is there is no clear Old Testament statement like that. Nothing in the Old Testament that says anything about Nazareth at all, much less that the Messiah is going to be called a Nazarene. So the question is, well, what do we make of statements like this? 
And there are a number of statements like this in the New Testament where if you, if you look for a reference, you kind of think, oh, where is that one? I don't know. I, I don't know where that is in the Old Testament. I don't know what he was quoting from. I don't know what he was thinking. So let's start with this one, and then we'll kind of work out depending on how much time we have left. The, there are some unique things with this statement in Matthew 2.23 that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. So Matthew has a particular way of presenting a quotation from the Old Testament. Uh, you can see it. Look in Matthew 1, verse 22. Uh, Matthew 1.22 says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then there's a quote. So I want you to notice what he has spoken by the prophet. This is a quotation from Isaiah, but he calls him the prophet. In Matthew 2 and verse 5, they told him in Bethlehem and Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. I know this is a, a group of scribes that's saying this, but this is in Matthew's typical form. What was written by the prophet, and he quotes from Micah. Matthew 2 and verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Voice was heard in Ramah. You, you see that quotation. But in each one, you have what was spoken by the prophet. And then in Matthew 2.23, it says, He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled. And that is notable to me because that's not what he says in the other forms. It does not say the prophets. It says the prophet because he has a specific one in these others that he's quoting from. He's quoting from Isaiah or from Micah or in this other one. I think that's Jeremiah, isn't it? Yeah, in, in 2.17. So there's no specific reference here in verse 23. There's no name given. He doesn't say spoken by the prophet so-and-so. It's not a misquotation like that. There is another unique part in that he uses the word that in verse 23. What was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is what's called an indirect quotation. So we use this a lot when we use the word that. Okay? If someone's going to say, you know, I was talking to so-and-so, and they said, we kind of expect them to say exactly what they said, unless they say, they said that, and then if we hear that word that, we expect, well, just to get the gist of the conversation. We don't expect an exact quotation, and that's what's going on here. The that makes it an indirect quotation, so that we're, we're talking more about a, a general idea of the prophets than we are about a specific quotation. So I don't think Matthew has a specific quote in mind, but what on earth could this mean? Okay, so if he doesn't have a specific quote in mind, then how can the general tone of the prophets be that the Messiah was going to live in Nazareth? So there are two basic explanations for this passage, Matthew 2, 23, that I have read. One hinges on the root word of, of Nazarene. Uh, Nazareth, the city where Jesus grew up, is not mentioned in the Old Testament, but the root of that word is the word nezer, which means branch which is a frequent messianic title in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah. Other people have said, well, that root nezer is the same as the root of the word Nazarite, which 10-year-old Jake is saying, man, I knew I had those confused. I always got Nazarite and Nazarene confused. Anybody been there? Okay, that idea is because they come from the same root word. And so there is sort of a, maybe this is linking Jesus to Samson, who was a Nazarite, had his birth announced in a similar way to Jesus. Boy, I have a hard time connecting Jesus to Samson. Do you? Okay, so, so I'm, I'm a little uh, skeptical of that explanation. Uh, the other explanation is that this is sort of a, less a reference than a summary of the general teaching of the Old Testament about the Messiah. And so what, that would, what this would take is that that idea of Nazarene, 
speaks to lowly origins. So there are some, I'm sure there are places in Arkansas like this. I know of places in Texas like this where if you say, oh, they're from so-and-so, you're thinking, oh, sorry for you, okay? The place itself is sort of an insult, okay? And that is the way Nazarene seems to be treated, especially when you see Nathaniel saying that, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Okay, that, that Nazareth is the boondocks of the ancient world. Okay, it's out in the middle of nowhere. Nobody comes from there. Nobody famous. No prophets from there. Surely no Messiah from there. Okay? And so the idea that he's going to be called a Nazarene could be taken to mean something like he's going to be a nobody. And you can see how that would fit in with the general tone of the Old Testament about the Messiah's humble origins. Okay, that he is going to come from a place that's not that impressive. He's going to be riding on a donkey. He's going to be despised and rejected by men. There's no majesty or beauty that we should desire him. That kind of tone uh, in the Old Testament. So the other possibility here is that this is a quotation that's spoken by a prophet that for some reason we don't have the prophecy or we don't know where it is or it's been destroyed or maybe it's something that uh, is not recorded for us. Now that all could be, but I've got to say I'm probably leaning most toward the explanation that this is sort of a summary of the Old Testament's teaching on the Messiah. So while we're here, I just want to say something about this whole concept of unrecorded prophecy and quotations that don't quite match up. There are a number of these in the New Testament, and there are some times where that number of those things refer to something like we might call a summary teaching. Okay, so turn the page over to Matthew 5. Uh, in Matthew 5, verse 33, it says, Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, a lot of these, when Jesus says, You've heard it said, and then I say to you, a lot of the you've heard it said are quotations from the Old Testament. This one is not. This is a summary of the Old Testament's teaching on oaths. And it's a really good summary. I mean, that's pretty much what the Old Testament says. You can piece a bunch of passages together, and that's basically what you get. But it's not really a quotation. It's not intended to be a quotation as much as a summary. And when you see that, I think we can mistakenly expect that to be a direct quotation. And if it's not, we think, well, Matthew must have messed up, when in reality, Matthew is just sort of summarizing a lot of other passages. Uh, there's another one like this in James chapter 4. James 4 and verse 5, it says, James 4 and verse 5, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So there are, by the way, we could do a whole Q&A on James 4 and 5. It's got a lot of uh, intricacies to it, and the way it's worded is strange. But what I want to focus on is the fact that it says the Scripture says... And then there's no scripture citation. We don't know where that's from. And I want to say that I believe that what's going on in James is the same thing that we just talked about in Matthew 5 and even in Matthew 2, that what James is doing is saying, this is the general tone of the teaching of the Old Testament about God. And I believe what he's saying is that God's a jealous God and that God wants our full allegiance and devotion. Now, are there passages that say God is a jealous God? Yes, a number of them in the Old Testament. And when you combine them all together, and then James also wants to talk about the Spirit, 
the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, I think what he's saying is this is what the scripture says. Not in any one place, but what the scripture says overall. So what I'm trying to open our eyes to with this is the idea that that New Testament writers did not always think about these things the way we would. Sometimes we look at the New Testament like a research paper where we expect a footnote and then we expect to be able to go and look at that footnote and just have in-depth references and everything is exactly in line. That's not the way they're writing. Instead, they're writing more in this way where Scripture is the warp and woof of their life. They know Scripture. They live Scripture. They see Scripture every day. They think in Scripture. And when they're going to refer to something, they might not say, here's the direct quotation. Instead, they might just say, this is what God has always thought or always said or what God is like or what the Scripture says God is. So when you see that, I think instead of saying, wow, he really missed it on that one, we need to say, wow, I want to be more like that, where Scripture is more a part of who I am, how I think, and the things that I, the way I answer these kinds of questions in my own life. All right, so I've got more to say about that. All right, let me do it. I got two minutes. Okay, here we go. I'm going to use them. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I've also been asked while I'm here to talk about John 1 and verse 25. And the same question that this came in. John 1, 25 is a little bit different. <clears throat> John 1, 25, John the Baptist has been baptizing, and the delegation comes to ask him who he is. John 1, 25, they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And so the question was, why would they assume, it's sort of like an unrecorded prophecy, where is the prophecy that connects the Christ and baptism? You know, they are saying, if you're the Christ, how do you baptize? If you're not the Christ, how do you baptize? So, where would that idea come from? There is no real connection in the Old Testament record between baptism and the Messiah or between baptism and the other figures mentioned in verse 25, Elijah and the prophet. That's not really the connection. And there were Jews that were baptized before Jesus came, before John came. Baptism was sometimes self-administered by proselytes to Judaism where they would baptize themselves. And sometimes in the, the, the group that was at Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, there were ritual cleansings that were done through baptism. But the appropriateness here, the question here is about authority, not really about a connection from Scripture. So in verse 25, when they ask him, why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? I think they're asking, who do you think you are that you're coming telling people to do something in order to be right with God? If you're not any of these figures, who are you and what gives you this authority? Which is the same kind of question they're going to ask Jesus later on. And John says, essentially, for one in verse 23, he says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I'm not any of these figures you think are coming. But instead, I have the authority because there is also one coming after me who is greater than me. He talks about that in verse 27, the strap of his sandal I'm not worthy to untie. So there is someone with greater authority coming after me. I baptize, but he's going to baptize in an even greater way with the Holy Spirit and fire. All right, I had two minutes and I took four. Uh, thank you so much for your attention. Keep asking those questions. We'll be dismissed for our classes now. <laughs>